welcome back to Significant Watches Podcast. It's been a few weeks since our last one, but we're still on the regular basis of recording and sending out. Gabe, how are you doing? I'm doing great, thanks. Not much new to report. No watches that you've purchased or no uh, no watches that you've gotten rid of? Um, I got rid of one thing that I don't want to talk about because the provenance kind of creeps me out. Um, but there, there, you know, there's a couple of things in the works still. I'm hopefully pulling the trigger on, uh, more on the independent side. Um, otherwise did I get anything recently? No, I think that's pretty much it for now. All right. Now I'm really interested. So we're going to have to jump back into that subject, hopefully later on in the episode. Tony, what's going on? A bunch of new articles that you've written about. Congratulations on all of the uh, acclaim. You're you're a superstar nowadays. What's going on? Wow. Thanks, Charlie. Thanks for having me on the show. Uh, just still riding high, though, off of seeing my favorite homies in New York uh, a couple weeks ago. Just you can't you can't knock me down. Yeah, it was awesome running into you. You came out for the wind up, uh, wind up watch fair on the Saturday and Friday, if I'm not mistaken, right? Or were you there all three days? I think I was there all three. I just couldn't get enough of you, Charlie. Oh man, how exciting! I brought him a Honey Wind strap for his for his Rolex that he has yet to uh, publicly share and 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 promote. It's a really sick watch. I was. That's what you get when you write write uh, reviews on Apple Podcasts, guys. Yes, of course. Eric, what's going on, baby? Good to see you, my man. Uh, doing well. We've fresh off back-to-back trips to New York City. First, we saw Tony at Wind Up Watch Fair, which was incredible. Um, it was concurrent with Watch Time New York. Really, really impressed with the turnout of the watch community. You know, New York City is really the hub of watch collecting and watch enthusiasm, I feel, you know, among the general public and to see thousands and thousands of people stroll through wind up, you know, where we were was really incredible. Lots of cool micro brands doing interesting things. And, um, you know, it was great, you know, only in New York city could something like that happen. Um, Watch Time Chicago and San Francisco, I understand, are also great, and we're excited uh, to go to those next year. And then we were in New York, Charlie and I, for the launch of the new <clears throat> Rowing Blazers X Seiko watches. So that was a lot of fun last Thursday evening with the watches launching on Friday. Tony's is en route to him. Uh, Charlie has his, uh, and I have one on as well. First of all, Chicago and San Francisco just catching absolute strays from Eric here early in the pod. No, but no, no. <laughs> we haven't Love seen it. it yet. We're going to we're going next year. So come come uh, prove me wrong. New no, York, New York was our first uh, wind up affair appearance. So that was really fun. I was uh, again incredible turnout. You know, shout out to all of our friends and and uh, family. The watch fam is what I think we call that. That came out and uh, stopped by the booth. It was really exciting. I mean, we were the only vintage vendor, so that was really exciting. And then you know, people were really enthusiastic about being able to try on stuff. But um, you know, right after the third day, we were um, asked if we were going to be attending the the next um, 
events in California as well as Chicago. And Eric and I couldn't have said yes um, quicker. So April, late April, uh, San Francisco and uh, mid July for Chicago 2023. Hope to see you there. Mark your calendars now. Tony and Eric, you guys want to kind of jump into um, some of y'all's experiences over the week, the weekend of um, wind up. And then also, I guess, the uh, watch time as well, because Tony, you were uh, back and forth between the events. So it'd be cool to kind of get your uh, perspective kicking it off. Did a little bit of both. Went to the Hodinkee office for the first time as well, which was great to see some of my co workers in person. Uh, Rich Forden and another friends of the program stood out. Uh, you know, was able to, to sit up by the vintage desk for an afternoon and just, you know, hear all the machinations of the esteemed Hodinkee vintage desk working, which was cool. Um, but the weekend itself was, was also great. Uh, watch time and Warren and Wound, totally different vibes, uh, totally different brands were there. Warren and Wound is is someone described it to me as inclusive luxury, but I don't know. It just seemed like a, uh, uh, a party the entire weekend. And then watch time was a little more buttoned up, slightly more formal. The brands there were a little bit more upscale, uh, totally different clientele consumer brands that stuck out to me there. I, I really wanted to try on the Parmigiani Tonda PF collection. I was, I was really psyched to try that on. And some of those watches were, really, really quite nice in person. They wear so, so well. Probably my favorite in the sports watch categories now. The GMT especially stood out to me. And then, of course, just hanging out at Warren and Wound, meeting all kinds of people there. Such a welcoming crew. The Warren and Wound people, so many of the brands from Anordain to Benris to, you know, Win Vintage even is, is kind of a brand in the space now, right? It's a name that people know. People want to wear it on their wrists. People want the watch pouches. Uh, so it was great to see them. And it was really the hub of the the hub of the the wind the wind up fair for me at least I think at any given time you could see esteemed collectors like Greg Selch, Jeff Hess, just like the the who's who of the the New York watch industry uh, industrial complex was was there at any given time all to see Charlie and Eric so it was really great to to see all of those people and then sort of just the extracurricular activities that that happen around watch time and worn and wound as well are, are great, you know, dinners and happy hours and, and all of that type of stuff. I met more people than I could have imagined. Um, I think the, the one thing that I really wish that they would have had is just like, they needed a place where you can just sit and, and talk and chat with other enthusiasts and collectors. Someone mentioned that there was a, a cafe vibe at the Horology Forum New York from Dubai Watch Week, as they call it. It, it, it would have been great to have something like that where you can just kind of chat with your fellow enthusiasts uh, and not feel like you're in the way of someone's booth. Um, but maybe they'll figure that out for, for a, future, a future weekend or event because... The watches are great and all that type of stuff, but but being able to meet all these people in person is the is the real highlight for me. Uh, led by sort of some of the people on this podcast, of course. But Eric, I imagine it's totally different for you and Charlie standing behind a booth for for eight hours a day, uh, you know, three days in a row. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> it was both Charlie and I literally cumulatively might have had 100 seconds free over the three days to like stuff a slice of pizza down our our face but uh it was it was really uh you know humbling to see so many people come out and sort of our first public event in new york city post pandemic uh you know last kind of similar thing i did was really the speech to the Horological Society of New York in March 2019. Um, so it was 
it was just great to feel a lot of support from people, even if they weren't necessarily in the market, like a Jeff Hess, he wanted to come by with his wife and say hi. And, uh, you know, now that he's on sort of biding his time until he starts at Sotheby's next August, he's got a little time, but it was really, really nice. He came by. Um, and yeah, last, last week as well, ton of people came by the new rowing blazers flagship store um and it was uh, really really nice to see everyone gabe are you at the uh, watch time event correct as well yeah i went to watch time it's it's right up my alley it was a lot of fun catching up with a lot of people that i hadn't seen in a while um i finally got my hands on the messina the new messina lab uh, you know the the rope highest one which was cool i got to check out the uh his his, you know, his uh, mono pusher perpetual calendar with Habring, and also I got to play around with the new dual chronograph from uh, from MBNF, which was I had feelings about it before I actually played with it, and I still think that would be a really cool desk clock to play with because you can you know switch between the two chronographs with a button. It, it's really cool. So that was cool. I hadn't seen Max in a while, so we had a nice long chat about you know catching up, um, you know, just what's going on with them. Uh, you know, it, it was it was a nice event. It was a little bit smaller. I went on Sunday, and so maybe the crowd was a little bit thinner than I had remembered in previous years. Um, you know, of course, back in the day, you know, there's always watching each running around with his, you know, like the little munchkin that he is, uh, being, you know, the, the life of the party. And so it was, it was a lot tamer, uh, but it was really cool. You know, what, it was nice to see was, people come out. What was the price of admission to get in there? Um, I, I, I don't know. Uh, MBNF threw me a, threw me a, a ticket. A, a, right, invite. Yeah. Ticket. Yeah. So I, unfortunately I, I didn't, I didn't really pay attention to it. Um, yeah. I didn't make it to any of the panels, but I saw a lot of the panelists, uh, that were, that they had assembled, which seemed like a pretty solid, uh, group for all the different panels that they had. So that, that seemed like a nice aspect to it also. Um, you know, it's, it, it's like a mini, it always felt like a mini SIHH to me. Um, and so that, that's pretty much, you know, the, the, at least the independence corner. So that was cool to see, you know, there were other brands like Oris. I got to, you know, try out the Armstrong uh, minute repeater, which was very impressive as well. Hugely oversized in terms of the watch, but very, uh, very nice, you know, interesting mechanically. Um, so that was cool to see a lot of these things in person that over the last couple of years I hadn't necessarily seen because I didn't have the interest to go to wherever they were exhibiting. Um, so that, that's been that's been really cool to kind of get my hands on some of these pieces again. Uh, the you know some of the new releases. So you know I, I was very happy with my uh, hour and a half there. Did you have any strong opinions on the Messina stuff? There's, there have been a lot of strong opinions uh, I've seen flying around. I'm wondering if you had thoughts on on either of them. Um, I so I'm I'm, I'm a I, I'm a big friend of uh, I'm good friends with Williams. So he and I get along very very well. Uh, and I I happen to really like where he started with all of this. You know, I bought all the early pieces and it started very nicely. I even liked the the uni racer. I know there were some strong opinions about that. Price point, like the feel and, you know, the, the wearability of it. I, I, I could get behind that. I like it. Um, I, I also like the Royal Pajes one, you know, aesthetic of the dial aside. 
I like the movement. I like that as Raul. I, I like what they're doing there. I see where it's coming from. And I also understand the ethos of what he's trying to do. Um, and I think it kind of fits. And he's not one to shy away from the controversy. I think he might be seeking it out to an extent. So I think that's, uh, that's part of the marketing strategy for him, if I'm perfectly honest. Um, so, so I, you know, I, I like the pieces that I like and some of the ones that I haven't purchased, I, I didn't like as much, whether they were size wise or looks wise. Um, you know, I, I originally didn't think that I liked the monopusher, um, uh, petrol calendar from Habering as much when I saw it first posted. Uh, but then in person, I, I liked it a lot more. The details, the dial, sort of the sub dials flowed a lot better in person, I thought, and it wore a lot better in person as well. So, you know, that that's something that I sort of changed my mind. I didn't dislike it. I just wasn't that warm to it. So now I'm a little bit, I'm a lot warmer to it now. Um, you know, I, the roll pies, I actually, I think is pretty cool for what it is. I mean, you know, talk about rarity. I mean, how often does anybody run into somebody with a roll pies? I mean, you know, that's pretty, that's pretty special in its own right. And I do think that it has a nice look to it, whether or not we want to talk about what that's derived from or a derivative of is kind of a different conversation, but yeah, he definitely kind of courts the controversy and he's a little bit of a bulldog in that, in that sense. So, um, you know, it's a personality thing. Well, should we move on to maybe a little bit of a, a market update or a vintage market update from our very own Eric Wind? I think people often love to hear sort of Eric's perspective on the market, uh, anecdotes, general trends, uh, whatever is happening in the market that, that may be of interest to our astute audience. Uh, so Eric, uh, maybe we'll kick it over to you for this. Yeah. <clears throat> well, um, I'm excited to talk about your recent Odinky article, Tony, but I think there's a wait and see moment. You know, as we record this, it's Tuesday, November 1st. The Geneva auctions are happening in a few days. Um, the, I think everyone's curious, you know, what's going to happen. If you look at the Geneva catalogs generally, it's a catalog that kind of very much reflects six months ago. A lot of Nautilus models, Royal Oak models, Jorns, all the stuff that was very hot six to 12 months ago. It's still hot, you know, relatively to where it was 18 months, two years ago. But um, obviously the momentum isn't isn't there like it was previously. So we'll see. Um, Antiquorum has a lot of pieces at pretty high estimates. So... Uh, people are wondering what the sell-through rate will be. I am of a perspective, obviously, being involved in the market that I want everyone to do well and watches to sell high. Uh, so certainly not rooting for bad results on anything. Uh, Gabe, on the other hand, likes to see some things get punished. Um, a bit some more men of a- just like to see the world burn. Would <laughs> <laughs> Tell us... Uh, Tell us a few of the things that that you're uh, surprised at, Gabe. 
Um, I'm, I'm still surprised that people are transacting in, in the Nautilus and Aquanauts, although I've been seeing the price of these things just absolutely plummet, you know, like 50, 60% from their highs a year ago. Uh, but otherwise I'm, I, I see a lot more hesitancy in, in quality. I mean, you know, this is obviously right in your wheelhouse, Eric, but you know, quality and condition for the vintage is, is what's trading versus, you know, the sort of mediocre quality stuff, even if it's a rare model, it's not, I don't see it moving as much. Um, but you know, I, I'm still, I'm still very shocked by the numbers that, that some of these ind- indies at uh, watch time were telling me how many people, how quickly they sell through pieces. Um, you know, I saw the, the reboot or the latest reboot of HYT and, you know, they're, they're launching something that should be pretty cool, but at a three hundred, three hundred fifty thousand dollar price point, and they already have a bunch of pre-orders that are, you know, that are that are booked, and that surprised me. And I don't know if that's a bubble moment for me when it's a brand that's gone through as many as many reiterations as it as HYT and as many problems as that's had. That they're still able to move uh, pieces in advance at you know those high prices. But uh, also, I mean, you know, with MBNF, they, they told me, you know, we were kind of reminiscing about the days where things were 25 off and, you know, I said, yeah, you, we used to give them to you at 25 off, but we used to, you know, they used to transact at another 25 off. So they were kind of the market price was about 50 off, but now, you know, you pay market price, you know, retail or slightly above and, you know, it kind of holds it val- its value just simply because the amount of demand. So I'm still impressed that there is as much indie demand as, as there has been and how strong it, it is. Um, I know just before the pod, we were talking about a, a, a very cool watch that that Eric should be having in the next, you know, soon. And I and I'm, I'm you know, I'm very happy that it's trading, you know, significantly above retail. Um, and there's still a lot of interest and demand in these uh, these watchmakers and the indie brands in general. So that's been a pleasant surprise for me. Yeah, about to list a, J- a JN Shapiro watch. Uh, so that'll be one of the first to hit the secondary market, is my understanding, and interested to see how that goes. One other uh, call-out, I would say. Um, very excited. There's a set of Jorn Cokies for sale in the Christie's live auction uh, from our friend Eric Peng Chang. Uh <laughs> When I sent it to him, he was on the floor, like dying, laughing. He didn't realize it was in the Christie's live. So uh, he's already making his impact on the world of horology with uh, the the FP Jordan Cokies doll set, which uh, my daughter Gemma, who's 18 months old now, absolutely loves. <laughs> I, I want to be clear if Eric's listening. They're not mine. Uh, you can see one of mine in my background right now. It's the Young Jorn. Um, yeah, I, I will never sell them at auction. <laughs> Me neither. Mine are uh, here to stay. He's literally working with uh, with two other collectors, and they've all allocated certain uh, certain action figures and watches from their Koki collection, so they can hit the hit the ground running with some more funds. They've given up some of the ones in their collection. <laughs> it's I crazy. only see one, so I don't believe it, Tony. Yeah, I only see one. 
<laughs> we put prove, together prove, a set. Prove you did not you did not scrape through some of your Koki collection. Not a full set, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the um yeah, so that'll be interesting. Um there's a few Paul Newmans coming up. Um we'll see how the quality is. Um there's a, a number of Cartier crashes coming up for sale between Sotheby's and Christie's. Um, that'll be very interesting. Um, I don't know if uh, its association with Kanye is going to hurt the watch. Uh, we'll see. Um, and uh, very excited to, to see how the there's, I mean, there's two big lots at, at Christie's that I think everyone's paying attention to the gold Paul Newman, six, two, six, three, uh, which they use the term, the legend, which Phillips coined a few years ago. Um, that one's at three to 5 million estimate, which feels a bit high because you're starting it. It's the exact one that sold at Antiquorum in 2013, which I remember um, it sold for about $900,000 at that time. Uh, so we'll see, you know, that opening bid is getting close to $4 million as the opener, um, which is very, very strong. And then the Tiffany Nautilus, everyone's very interested to see how that does. That's at 1.5 low. So, you know, under 2 million all in is the starting bid that the owners of that watch are definitely watching that one closely. Um, I had two different people contact me recently with watches they were considering selling <laughs> that, that they have and trying to figure out the market. And I just said, it's kind of a wait and see till that sells. Um, everyone's very happy about the Wally Shira result, which we can attribute to the Tony Trena Hodinky bump um, at RR auction sold for over 1.9 million. Uh, which is incredible for a gold Swede master. Uh, Michael Collins watch, you know, wasn't that long ago and it sold for 750,000 thereabouts at heritage. So a huge bump up, arguably Collins is more important and Collins didn't have a replaced bezel. Um, so that's a, that's a very good result for the market. I think, you know, there was a Michael Jordan game worn jersey that just went for ten point eight million at Sotheby's uh, from nineteen ninety eight. You know, there's a lot of money still out there pursuing exceptional things, but I think the key word is exceptional. And the average stuff, subpar stuff, there's a lot of it out there. If you look at the total number of listings on Chrono Twenty Four for Daytona's Royal Oaks Nautiluses, it's almost double total listings compared to what what it was six months ago in some cases more than double so there's a ton of things hitting the market and uh you know as a result prices are are falling until we see the floor but uh that's the status so i guess this begs the question what makes for a million dollar watch at auction today <laughs> that's great charlie thanks for teeing me up here i guess i can start to take this one and then I, i'd love to get your guys's thoughts as well because you know i'm just i'm just one man here uh it's a dilettante if you will in the world of million dollar watches but you know i 
I'd been fascinated by this question for a while ago. Uh, it was only 25 years ago uh, that the first watch sold for a million dollars that Stacey Perman, if you haven't read her book, A Grand Complication, she, she kind of mentions it in her book when she's um, going through the history of watches and wristwatches at auction. So it's really not even that long ago that wristwatches in particular have been serious collectibles. And we went relatively quickly from a place where one watch sold for a million dollars. And in 1996, it was some platinum Patek Philippe Calatrava that measured about 31 millimeters. From what I understand, you can see it in the Patek Philippe Museum now. Uh, I think Charlie may have seen it there. I haven't been yet, but I'm sure I will one day soon. And uh, over, you know, through the turn of the century, I would say, and beyond, uh, the high end of watch collecting was kind of just defined by vintage Patek Philippe. Like watches over a million dollars were pretty much 24.99s and a handful of other paddocks, uh, a lot of them steel, complicated type of watches. And, uh, you know, we went from that to a place where last year in 2021, more than 50 watches sold for a million dollars. Obviously, that's inflation, right? A million dollars isn't what it used to be. But it's it's fascinating to me that nowadays you'll also see watches from Jorn and Daniels and Rolex sell for uh, the same prices that might have been reserved for a paddock 25 years ago. And uh, even stuff like Vintage Omega first hit a million dollars five years ago or so with Elvis Presley's watch and the first one of the first Torbjorn wristwatches that it that it made. Uh, and then we were just talking about Wally Shura's watch that probably no one would have expected to go for a million dollars even a year or two ago, hitting 1.9 million, which uh, would, would have been kind of an unfathomable result just a year ago. Uh, vintage Cartier dress watches that no one cared about a few years ago are selling for a million dollars almost on the regular now. Uh, the Cartier Crash, the Cartier Chech, all hitting a million dollars this year. So uh, for me, it's it was kind of just a fascinating thing to observe how money has flown out from um, just finished paddock to all of these other things. And um, it's, it's a few things, right, in my opinion. One of the biggest ones is research. I think uh, research and information first kind of passed uh, around the world uh, with vintage paddock and the 2499 became this really researched watch, as did other vintage paddocks, but uh, eventually that type of scholarship, as people call it, um, spread to Rolex and people got passionate about vintage Daytonas and 4413s started passing a um, million uh, dollars with with regularity as well. And then other things as well. People have, you know, the last few years has been defined by the rise of Indies, right? People have gotten into Jorn and now it, it costs, well, we'll see, but it costs three or four million dollars to get a Jorn Torbjorn subscription, uh, one of the, the early historically important wristwatches to him. And, um, you know, while it, it initially sort of vintage paddock and vintage Rolex, uh, people focused on things like historical provenance and uh, the importance of a watch and things like that and rarity. Uh, it seems like people focus when they're looking at modern Jorns and DeFores and other Indies. Uh, things like craftsmanship have become more important as well. Uh, you know, we look at things that are historically important to Jorn and his development as a watchmaker, but we also uh, care about the actual craftsmanship that went into DeFore finishing a simplicity, for example, and what sets that apart from other independent watchmaking. And that's what makes it a million dollar watch as compared to some other independents. And um, it's, it's fascinating to me to kind of watch how. Uh, that market has developed alongside the the vintage market. And then kind of the last thing that uh, I noticed as a common thread 
as as I was going through a lot of the recent million dollar results is a lot of this stuff is fresh to market and it's got verifiable provenance. So thinking about the Cartier crash or the Chech that went for a million dollars this year, those were uh, from the original owners, things that the market didn't know about previously, stuff that we can verify. Uh, think about the first million dollar sub from a few years ago. It was um, something that came from the original owner's family as well. Uh, it was beat up. It didn't have a bezel, but uh, it was in beautiful condition otherwise. And it had this super rare Explorer dial. Um, and and people really, whether it is vintage or modern, um, stuff that's fresh to market, that's exciting to everyone. And not just, um, it's exciting to collectors that have been around the block for 30 or 40 years, as well as new collectors and something we can discover together, whether it is vintage or modern, is is stuff that seems to get the market excited. Uh, Even sort of the most jaded of collectors, guys like Eric or Gabe that have been around for quite a while and seen all of these vintage Daytonas get passed around and they sell at Anticorum and then they sell at Sotheby's and then they're on talking watches and then they're on the market again, being passed around in dealer chats. Um, stuff that's legitimately new and exciting can, can kind of get the most, uh, the most jaded of collectors still excited today. But, uh, you know, maybe I could kick it over to Eric here, uh, a guy who's got a lot more perspective on this type of stuff and, and has been around a lot longer uh, to, to sort of expand a little bit more on, on what he's seen or sort of his perspective on this type of stuff. No, I, I thought it was an excellent article, very good kind of primer for people interested in it with interesting commentary. Um, just a wonderful piece, Tony. So happy, happy you wrote it. Um, the kind of classic piece example is that 1415 Patek Philippe World Time in Platinum that sold for about a fifth of the price of what it sold for 20 years ago. Uh, came from the the Samsung family. Um, you know, we we don't know if the reason it sold so high at the time was um, sometimes people get run up illegally or that could be either by the auction house or the consigner or there were just two people that really wanted it at the time. But, um, you know, it's, uh, it's an excellent watch. Um, the condition of the dial is not amazing. You know, I, I think the one of the biggest things I would say, you know, that we've we've hit on it a thousand times, but condition, condition, condition. Uh, and, uh, you know, stuff before people, you still see it actually in the high-end market. Charlie and I were talking about this, but, you know, buyers of 1518s and 2499s, often want super clean looking watches, even if they've been polished or reworked uh, versus an honest watch. And they'd rather have something with kind of ugly rebrushing and everything else made to look new, but clearly isn't if you have the eye for it. And uh, I'd rather, and I think the new generation of collectors would rather have it not be rebrushed and and have all this work done to the case and dial and all that sort of stuff. So um, that's going to be a big shift, I would say, in high-end Patek. You don't have that issue so much with Rolex because it's either kind of unpolished or not, and dials with Rolexes typically are not touched because it's not engraved and then enameled for the signatures and lines. Um, so you don't get like cleaned dials with vintage Rolex watches typically. Um, so we'll see, you know, certainly 
the momentum the last couple of years on the high end has been more toward the independents, um, you know, watchmakers as artists, uh, you know, like uh, treating, you know, Philippe Dufour like a Jeff Koons or Damien Hurst or something like that. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's not it's not unlike what happened with with art, you know, in decades past, the switch to kind of post-war art from the old masters. Um, we'll just see how how it all transpires in the coming years. But um, certainly if I was buying, you know, uh, for clients that I advise or those involved in the market, I would, you're not just buying for the present. If you care about the resale value of these things, you have to look at what the buyers for this watch will be 5, 10, 20 years down the road. And I think it's as original and honest as possible is, is where the market's shifting that condition, condition, condition talk versus the rarity side. Uh, and the 1415 is a classic example of that. Hey, I have a question about the 1415, Eric. Uh, thanks for bringing that one up because that was one of the other things that fascinated me about last year when it sold for you know $2 million when it had sold for six and a half or something like that back in 2002. And um, I had a quote from Davide Parmigiani who kind of struck a pessimistic tone about the result. You know, people don't realize the historical importance of this watch and all of that type of stuff. Um, I, I kind of struck a little bit more of an optimistic tone because, listen, it might not be a $6 million watch. Maybe it never really was, to your point. Um, maybe something weird happened in the auction um, back in 2002. But I struck a little bit more of an optimistic tone because back in 2002, basically, if you were going to spend a million dollars on a watch, it was going to be a vintage paddock, a vintage complicated paddock. Whereas nowadays, um, you could spend it on all kinds of things, Omegas, Cartiers, paddocks, of course, but Rolex and Jorn and all of this other type of stuff. So to me, it kind of is a net positive trend uh, for for sort of watch collecting in general. But I'm wondering if you have any sort of thoughts on that type of thing, or if you're as pessimistic as, as Parmigiani seemed to have been with that result. No, I mean, I... Uh... He, he he might definitely he was a little pessimistic for me and i think a lot of people the condition of that dial most of the signature was gone it was heavily heavily sanded i would rather have an untouched yellow than a super worn unique platinum if i was just to own it price aside and i think that that's the big shift you know i'd rather have a really super nice 5513 or 5512 Submariner unpolished, untouched than, you know, a heavily polished 6538 personally um, from a, from an ownership kind of perspective. Um, Submariners we're talking about. Uh, so uh, yeah, the, that's the shift, you know, and I think um, condition, provenance, originality, um, those sorts of things. That's the big shift. You know, I feel like I could be kind of curmudgeonly and say like, why are people spending this much money on these independents or whatever, when they're still alive and they're making a lot of watches and they're promising people they're doing something unique. And then they make 10 more the next week and like all that sort of stuff, which happens all the time, you know, but I'm not going to be a curmudgeon about it. It's like, a shift in the market. I'm happy people are excited about watches. I think there was a GQ watch survey that Cam Wolf did recently, and he was nice enough to kind of 
have me in the headline article, but headline kind of paragraph, I would say, but it's like the reality is there are millions more people interested in watches now than a couple of years ago. And they're going to kind of enter it in different ways, whether it's with the moon swatch or, you know, via the Apple watch or, you know, via art and then into the independence because they most kind of closely associate with that or all kinds of things. Um, it's not, you know, as simple as like seeing a Paul Newman Daytona in a magazine and then wanting to collect vintage Rolex. Um, it's the way that people access watches is and kind of get into it is all very, you know, it's evolving and changing over time. Um, when I first got interested in watches, it was early Hodinkee days, 2008, first couple months of it existing. And, you know, for me, it was seeing vintage Rolex watches and falling in love with the patina and vintage Hoyers, the colors, the cases, all that sort of stuff. Um, it wasn't like seeing a gold Calatrava and wanting that. It wasn't, that wasn't where I started. Um, but uh, yeah, I think that's the, that's the very interesting thing and, and will be interesting to see, you know, how this evolves. But going back to George Daniels, which you mentioned in there in the spring case, I'm, uh, you know, that's a watch that, you know, five, 10 years from now, I think whoever buys that will be very, very happy they did, to be honest. It's like one of, the, you know, there's only two wristwatches made by his own hand from scratch and that's that's one of them so uh you know to me that's a watch that regardless of what the market does if you buy it because you love the watch and the history and the importance of it i think that's uh that's one you just keep bidding on and don't stop until the gavel falls Gabe, what say you as number one our resident uh indie collector but perhaps more importantly our resident curmudgeon <laughs> um i i don't mind the in astronomical prices uh on things i mean we see them in other assets that you know that are more that have been traditionally more mainstream so i don't really mind that watches are catching up to it what i mind is the astronomical prices for things that aren't necessarily that important that rare or that are a dial here or there, like a Jorn Lapis dial or something like that going for, you know, or the, whatever it is, the Jade dials going for insane numbers. Um, I mean, that that's where it kind of grates at me because it's just get, you know, get a rose gold one, get a, you know, whatever else other version that, you know, that you want to. I mean, you know, mind you, a couple of years ago, I still remember when they had the the set of the Jorn steels. You guys remember that for whichever anniversary it was in the 38, and they literally could not sell them, so they started parting them out and selling them as individual watches because of the sets. And I think the set was only like 300 grand or something like that. And, and I say only, you know, in jest, but now, you know, if you were to, to purchase them individually, it'd probably be about a million dollar set now. Um, so, you know, it, it it's you know I, I i my my intellect and my emotions sort of have to catch up to a lot of these prices now um like i'm not a buyer of 5711 even at today's prices which are about you know 40 50% less than they were at their peak a year ago cuz i still remember when the retail price was below 20 grand and they were selling below retail 
you know, on 47th street every day of the week. So, you know, it's, and plus it's just not that special of a watch in my opinion to, to warrant that kind of a price, but there's definitely watches that are, that come to mind that are, you know, okay, I can see why that's, that could be a million dollars or why that should be a million dollars and, you know, why somebody would pay that. You know, there are a lot of very cool um, earlier vintage watches that are that come to mind. Um, one that comes to mind is the the Don Pancho, the, uh, you know, the Vacheron that, that I kind of <laughs> really grew to fall in love with. And, uh, and you know, that that's one that watch that I could see could have a, million dollar valuation or more um down the line or even now but again you know there there are certain things that i see like you know the black dial 2499 I, I understand it but when i saw it it just didn't have the effect on me that i sort of would associate a watch with that kind of price tag and you know the difference is one of my girl watches at the pink pink 1518s and every time i see one whether or not it has a scratch dial or whether or not it has king farouk's uh you know provenance on it i i i see it and like it has this like aura around it i don't know how else to explain it has this x factor that that sort of transcends the watch and uh and so i i'm kind of on both ways about it and you know on the indie side you know i'm I'm very happy that you know the Dufours are as expensive as they are even though numerically they're not as rare as certain other watches that are from important watchmakers or important brands that don't command those prices um so you know again it it's kind of hit or miss on on but it's very uh piece specific with me on why on why it would be that way uh, on, on valuations but overall I think it's good I think it attracts more buyers you get sort of the trickle down buyers from watches and art and I think that's generally a net positive for for the for the market it serves as sort of a you know a, a pull up and uh, I think as more we get more of these guys you know the into it we might see some interesting developments that will help the market uh, overall to really make that full transition to a you know full on asset class with all the traditional um trappings that you can get associated with that which are which are good and i think that'll do a lot of wonders for market stabilization so overall net positive um but there are some very very questionable watches that are worth uh seven figures or more Yeah, two watches I think worth discussing that are coming up in Geneva. One, the twenty four ninety nine with black dial. Um, positives: it's the apparently the only example known with an extract confirmed black dial. The negative, of course, is the dial was swapped in. Uh, I believe it was um, nineteen ninety six. Uh, previously, at a silvered dial. Um, so. That was, you know, that's an interesting watch. It's a much newer dial if you look at it. The the watch itself dates to 1963. The dial was probably made in the 80s or 90s, probably 90s. Um, so, you know, where does someone value that? Um, and uh, we saw a black dial 2499 go very cheap at Heritage a few years ago. Um, so that that's an interesting thing you know for me 
that's not a watch that appeals to me that much personally because of the newer dial swapped etc certainly cool looking you know if it was an original black dial 2499 i think there may only be one with a period correct dial but not extract confirmed but from the period of the 60s that would be much more interesting you know who knows still not as interesting if it wasn't born in the watch but who knows um there is one, uh, one out there i think this watch is uh fascinating for a number of reasons I've, we've got a predictions article coming out this watch sold for 950,000 swiss francs back in 2000 at antiquorum and my prediction uh in a forthcoming article is that it'll sell for less money um this time around but we'll see uh feel free to you know correct me if i'm wrong in in the comments or in my dms uh this, this coming weekend uh but yeah. go ahead go ahead eric yeah. and then second the speaking of vacheron you know the kind of the biggest vacheron to come up since the don poncho phillips had a few years ago is the uh, 4764 chocolate which is a complete calendar uh platinum piece at sotheby's that is more on the unrestored you know looks completely unpolished was originally sold to athens greece in 1957 fresh to market only one made um the dial is not engraved enamel on it it's printed and it's clearly had a lot of moisture damage etc it's one of those kind of barn find uh things i would say like finding an old sports car in a barn and there's rats living in the in the engine and the the, the seats are all ripped up etc that kind of aesthetic look uh only one it's not like we're gonna find another one um and it's uh you know arguably one of the most distinctive vacheron references from the middle of the 20th century the chocolatone case uh so that's going to be interesting 500 to a million um you know it's going to come down to whether people really envision themselves wearing that watch like it's a very rustic looking dial um you know or is there something else they would rather have the Don Poncho was an interesting watch in the world of sort of vintage watches because they basically had Vacheron make a new dial and hands with like Super Luminova, but you got the original heavily worn uh, dial and hands with the watch, so you could always swap it back. Uh, this is, you know, obviously you could commission Vacheron to make a new dial uh, if you wanted later saw images of the dial outside of the case it's so cool the way it's domed like an umbrella basically to match the movement um it is an outstandingly beautiful interesting watch dial made by stern frere uh similar to the rolex dial on tony's uh rolex that he picked up from win vintage uh to commemorate his move to hodinky uh similar numbers Similar numbers to the 8171 Patalone as well. Very distinctive 12, if you look. So uh, that's, you know, those are two kind of interesting test cases about what's, you know, what the collectors want. Where will they sell? How are these things going to be worth down, down the road? What will they be appealing or not?
Eric, you've, you've done it again. My other prediction was going to be related to Vacheron. There's, of course, that watch, but, you know, there's a there's a handful of other cool Vacherons as well. There's a, a minute repeater at Phillips and uh, supposedly a rare chronograph as well that uh, I've got. An, and obviously the, the 222, original 222 has been having a strong year otherwise, but um, you're you're quite perceptive in, your, uh, in the lots you're calling out, which I appreciate. Do you think the uh, Tiffany fifty seven eleven is going to go for north of two million? <laughs> I got I offered that, one uh, two weeks ago we... at three point two. So I don't know if that's an indicator for the market. No, uh, by by dealer. dealer. Yeah, yeah. I don't, they're I in don't dealer know. chats for three. Yeah. Or people were saying they'd pay high twos, like two point eight or whatever. But I don't know. Yeah, in my prediction thing, I have uh just a little aside. 2.9 is the number I, I've got, which sounds... Uh, that's where I would place the over-under if I were a Vegas. Well, so. I hope it passes. Well, so, <laughs> If I may be so yeah. bold as to make my prediction that... Yeah, yeah. That's... Yeah, it'll be interesting. Charlie, you had something you were going to say? I think one of the one of the more areas I think in the immediate future would be interesting to see how the million-dollar... Um, test goes is is speedmasters with astronaut astronaut provenance um you know finite amount more recent performance has, has been better as well as with the involvement of omega searching for their own heritage department to acquire these things i mean the upside of it for them is to continually get branding that's just you know invaluable from their end and purchasing world-class or important examples um, finite amount again, in terms of you know the amount of astronauts that have received them, it would be that would be kind of the one that I think is is a more tangible like in the five ten years seeing it. I don't know if if I'm as optimistic that um, vintage Patek Philippe wristwatches that are in all original condition or as close to original condition will not be. Uh, as high performing in, in the future or moving forward. I think that probably if you were to see areas of, of where like the collectors that value originality, um, actually looking for, you know, watches with, with more integrity would be the complicated paddock fleet pocket watches, as well as the, maybe even the enamels. Um, again, like the enamelist provenance seems to be something that, is a story with a huge amount of opportunity for collectors to kind of get in on that cross that that cross section of artistry as well as horology. But, I mean, with the with pocket watches, there's so many that have not been subject to restoration, um, as well as you've got a lot of important dial makers as well as important complication specialists. If you're looking at it from kind of a from more of an academic approach of what you're 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 getting comparable to the wristwatches they don't go through as much restoration um that'd be kind of my my opinion on it i'd be interested to see like in the long term does vintage paddock fleet pocket watches kind of have a resurgence of not outperforming wristwatches but just getting its you know its second breath i guess um and then on top of that i mean there's no shortage of important collectors worldwide that own these these pocket watches i mean it's the brand that people have collected so i'd imagine that that's the one that seems to be the most 
uh, sensible. Now, I guess um, wrapping up, I mean, I think we could uh, probably read uh, the weekly review of, of choice. You know, I'm not seeing as many people write reviews and, and rate the podcast in the last two weeks. I don't know what's what's going on, but I encourage people to continue doing it. Otherwise, we're going to just have to record less frequently, you know, and I don't know if that's something that if they if they want it, you know, they can they can show love and, and encourage us to get back on on a regular schedule. Eric, I have one a, good one we can read. Uh, Tony, you want to you want to kick it off on the review? Yeah, it's not as good as Dr. Andrews. I'm going to say that up front. I mean, he's a, a wizard with the pen. Uh, the title of this one, though, is, is good. It's called On Polish, Five Stars, from Ronin77. While this term tends to be overused in the watch world, it can signify something with originality, not tarted up, smiley face. In the case of this podcast, it is highly applicable. Significant Watches offers you a straightforward take on all things vintage watches, and for me, that is what I love most about the hobby. Having differing views from distinctive collectors allows for interesting conversation to emerge, and all of this without someone trying to sell you on the latest fad. My only complaint is we have to wait so long between episodes. A valid complaint. Thank you, Ronan77. Uh, feel free to reach out for a honey wind strap, Ronan. <laughs> I would like to read one more. Um, it's called Always the Best is the title. Had the pleasure of meeting Charlie and Eric at Dubai Watch Week, NYC. Just a couple of class acts who, as you all may know, spread an infection, infectious love of vintage watches and horological history. As someone who is relatively new to watches and the tightly knit community that goes with it, I felt like a bit of an outsider at the event. Eric, a mini celebrity who managed to overshadow the likes of Daniel Day Kim, and Charlie, who was grinding with his camera to produce the professional content at strictlyvintagewatches.com. As an aside, also winvintage.com. Check out the latest photo reports. Very good plug. Very good plug. <laughs> Thank you for that. Seemed rather hard to approach. However, Charlie sat with me for nearly 15 minutes before the event as we bounced off questions about personal preferences, the progression of building a collection, and the way content like the Significant Watches podcast can shape the watch market. He even let me try on his nearly mint 1018. Charlie, I hope you don't corner the entire market for that reference. Good all luck. in all, <laughs> he's Good on his luck. luck. He's trying. <laughs> All in all, a couple of stand-up gentlemen who deserve every five-star review they receive. I have never met Gabe or Tony, but if they keep company with Eric and Charlie, then I'm sure they're of top-notch caliber. If only I could convince my friends to listen to the podcast. <laughs> you get a strap. You get a strap. You get a strap. <laughs> so uh, to our friend uh, T. Murray. Uh, please also feel free to reach out and we're we're grateful for the review um i think with that we'll sign off we're excited to uh, get this up asap and uh, we'll be back with you soon there's a ton more to discuss uh in the watch world including our first uh, titanium rolex all very excited about that sold to civilians uh, i'm sure we'll see it on tony's wrist soon and uh a lot of other interesting uh, news in the world of watches. <laughs>